Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6, and this is found in the Blue Pew Bible on page 965. People of God, give ear, for this is the very word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you desire to reveal yourself to us in your word. You desire and have designed to build us up in this word, to equip us with this word, to manifest your glory to us, to... Lord, create in us your very image through this word. We, Lord, give ourselves up to you. We acknowledge that apart from your spirit, this word will do us no good. But by your spirit, Lord, we will grow in grace. We will conform our ways to Christ. We will change our thinking. We will be better husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and neighbors, members of one another in this body. Oh, Lord, build us up. Make us into the image of Christ. We look to you expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always been resistant to the idea that I am doing the most important thing in the world as a minister. I've in fact, counseled people a lot in the past who I felt like had decided that was the spiritual thing to do, to be in ministry, and everything else is relatively unspiritual. And you know that the history of the church bears this out a lot in the early years. 
it was thought that there were, and you can read these kinds of things, that there were two levels of Christianity. There was the one level devoted to you know, ministers, the priests, etc. That was a higher level, way closer to God, and then a way lower level, almost as though we just had to put up with these other people that did these lesser things that weren't directly concerned with the Word of God. And I loathe that kind of teaching, of course. And I believe strongly in the richness of God's creation and that every part of everybody's life is hugely important to God. And, and all of it is important. But I, I want to underscore this morning not just the importance of what I'm doing, but the importance of what we all are about with the gospel. I want to just challenge you with that. Do you, are you fueled by that during your week? Is that part of what you're thinking about as a believer? How can I manifest the gospel in my home, toward my children, toward my husband, toward my wife? How is the gospel taking hold of my life? How am I manifesting it in my community? How precious is the gospel to me? What does the gospel even mean? The gospel was this centerpiece, this good news of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Really, the gospel is Christ. It's the presentation of Christ and all that he is. But I think that sometimes just the everyday stuff of our life, the gospel is buried somewhere. We don't think this week, we're not even conscious that all of us together are an army that we're setting forth by word and deed the light and glory of Jesus Christ. And to think of how this is the influence, the thing that's going to change you as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is the gospel of Christ. The thing that's going to change a community, a society, a nation. The thing that's changed the course of history and yet will change the course of history is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation. If there is salvation, if there is true transformation of people being conformed to God and given up to God, it is all through the gospel and no other way. It is by the gospel that God transforms us and transforms anybody or anything. It is the gospel. And so we're going to look some at the gospel this morning as Paul talks about his ministry. We've already been in this section of the Word of God as Paul has uh, compared the new covenant with the old covenant and the glory of the new covenant so outshining the old covenant that it has no glory in comparison. And here, as he's talked about the veil that lay over the hearts of the people of Israel and and how they were shut off from the glory of God by their own uh, selfishness and their own rebellion. He is also talking about his ministry, and in this way, talking about what happens when he preaches the Word of God. He had already done that at the end of chapter 2 in a, a stunning section. If you want to look there on page 965, when he talks about the preaching of the word as this triumphal procession that's going forth in the world. Just think of that language 
of the gospel. All of us caught up in this gospel in various ways, proclaiming it, living it out, discussing it with one another, encouraging one another, and this spilling out into uh, relationships with unbelievers. But he says here, especially as the centerpiece of this whole thing, the apostolic uh, proclamation, that, that, and that apostolic proclamation is, of course, inscripturated now. We have that, and we're following in the footsteps, proclaiming it. But he calls it this triumphal procession. And he says, we're spreading the fragrance of uh, the knowledge of him everywhere, this aroma of Christ that is rising up to God. So this triumphal procession is like a great sacrifice lifted up to God. Paul says, that's basically, Paul said, that's what life is for us as believers. Triumphal procession, as it moves out to bring light to a dark world, and all of this is an aroma to Jesus Christ. And then he says, when we proclaim Christ, it's life to some and it's death to others. Who is adequate for these things? The weightiness of it, you know, the weightiness of being a part of the only light in the world to live and proclaim out that gospel that is a worship and sacrifice to God, a triumphal procession. But in the wake of it, what happens is it divides people. Some people will refuse it and it will be death to death to them and others it will be life to life. And Paul says, who is adequate for this? Who can stand up under the responsibility, the weightiness of what is going on? And it's in that context that he says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We're men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. Get the feel of, in that context, how momentous and terrible it would be that you begin to manipulate that message so that the attention is not on the glory of Christ for whom is life or death, depending on what you do with him. And now it's turned around to some way promote me. Paul says we do not peddle this word. We are faithful. We speak in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ. That's the context already of this passage in chapter 4 and a kind of a backdrop uh, that we should have as we come to what he says here in chapter 4. And really, to put it in the simplest way, in chapter 4, he's basically, he basically talks about the heart of the one who preaches the word the gospel, and then the heart of the one who hears the gospel. It's basically the two things that are dealt with, uh, to put it in you know a simple form. So the heart of the one who preaches the gospel, um, I'm going to talk about the confidence, the integrity, and then the, um, the allegiance, the confidence, integrity, and allegiance of the apostolic preaching of the gospel, CIA. Oh, yeah. Alliteration at its best right there. Um, you know I don't alliterate much, so I just want to be funny. Um, so as he talks about the confidence here, notice, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He's speaking of a timidity that shrinks back from coming forward and speaking out. A faint-heartedness 
that, as Plummer puts, it takes refuge in silence and inactivity to escape criticism. I know that doesn't mark your life and doesn't mark my life. Silence and inactivity to escape criticism. This timidity, he says, we don't lose heart. We don't, we're not timid. But why? Well, first it's the greatness of this ministry. Having this ministry of which he's spoken, this ministry that proclaims the glory of God in Christ, this ministry, as he's spoken about it in chapter 3, that sets forth righteousness, it, it sets forth life, it's full of the Spirit transforming lives. This is the ministry he has, we have, and he says, we can't be timid in the light of something so glorious that we're bringing to the world. But also, not only the greatness of the ministry, but the gift of the ministry. Notice he says, by the mercy of God, we have this ministry. And so he realized that because he owed his participation to God's mercy, it gave him a courage and a frankness. I've noticed this sometimes with people who have come from really hard circumstances. And some people who kind of just coasting along, been in church a long time, nothing much excited ever happened to them, and they're kind of almost inoculated against the gospel. And then someone who's been in the worst of circumstances finds the gospel, and their courage and boldness just shocks people. And it's like the woman who came and washed Jesus' feet. The shocking courage and boldness of this woman to walk in that place with those men, knowing the criticism she was receiving, how against all society it was. She didn't care. She loved Jesus. Just loved. I remember a fellow, he was in Louisiana, and he was talking, he was a drag racer, and I, I kind of, we kind of had some common ground because my daddy had a drag strip, you know, growing up and stuff. The doctor who had a drag, drag strip, that was really... Uh, funny at times. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he, he had just a shocking red hair that went straight back off his head, you know, and looked like Porter Ragnar, you know, that kind of guy, and wore boots all the time. And in Louisiana, boots mean a different thing than they do in Texas. Um, <clears throat> but I remember him saying, man, when the Lord got a hold of me, I went down to the church and I said, I got to do something for Jesus. Just l- let me put in some new bushes or something. You know, <laughs> it was just... He was just hungry to do something for Jesus. And, of course, everybody in the church were just shocked because they weren't hungry to do anything for Jesus. But this man who is lost and found. And so there's something of this with Paul, you see, a boldness because I have this great ministry and it's been given to me by God's mercy. And that's why I'm bold. That's why I do not shrink back because I had nothing and look what God has given me. So his confidence uh, as a minister, but also his integrity. And that same mercy means humility, an integrity of humility, not to promote himself. Uh, As Philip Hughes says, mercy is shown only to the guilty, the condemned, and the hopeless. The guilty, the condemned, and the hopeless. And so... It's like the Rogaine commercial, you know, at the end where the guy says, he's the CEO of Rogaine, and he says, hey, and I'm also a client, you know. Here's Paul saying, I'm the chief client. 
I'm the worst of the clients. I had more need than anybody else. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He said, if anybody needed this gospel, it was me. If there was a burned out, ruined house by the flood of sin, it was me. And so with that kind of heart, you see, he was proclaiming this message. He was a client. And so uh, having this ministry, uh, which we have only because of the mercy of God, it is his mercy that we're even involved in this ministry. And that, that helps us so much as we're part of this uh, triumphal procession. It's not the triumphal procession of people that think they're better than anybody. It's the triumphal procession of people who found the liberty of brokenness, the liberty of forgiveness. What a weird army that is. What an attractive army. What a winsome army that can be. An army that is sacrificing itself for others because it's found mercy. We're clients, all of us. So that's a part of his integrity. And then not only the humility, but there's such an honesty in his preaching. We already saw this, of course, and why it was there from from the second chapter. But here he says the same thing, basically, in in verse uh, 2. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. That word cunning is used again in 2 Corinthians later in chapter 11 uh, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. The root of cunning or the association of cunning is demonic, satanic. That we would use this cunning and, and pervert the word, promote ourselves in the midst of it. The, the word there is to use any means to get what you really want. And these things are shameful, as he indicates. And, of course, the whole point there is to adulterate the Word, to tamper with God's Word. The Word means to adulterate it. And so he says, by the manifestation of the truth, by open statement of the truth, how do we commend ourselves to people? Truth. That doesn't mean truth that's not in love, of course. Truth that's not accompanied by this character of humility. But we don't, we let the chips fall when it comes to the truth, wherever it lands us, whatever the response. And of course, we have to do it at the right time, wisely, build relationships, all of that. But when it comes to speaking the truth, we commend ourselves by nothing else than just the truth as it is, not fiddling with it. And commending ourselves to every kind of conscience, with that, that's what that means, to commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, to every kind of conscience that might be out there. No matter what condition it's in, we only are going to depend on the truth and nothing else. We're not going to be filled with any other method than the truth accompanied by love, expressed by love. And of course, again, he refers to the conscience in the sight of God. The same thing he said in chapter 2, in the sight of God. Can't appeal to anything greater than that. Ultimately, I will face God for how I live, for what I say. And it must be pleasing to Him. It doesn't matter if it's agreeable to somebody, if it tickles their ears, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. What matters is that I am speaking the truth. And of course... uh, Along those lines, and and this really flows from that, uh, we find in verse 5, 
Why is there this integrity? It's because of the allegiance he has. The integrity he has depends on his allegiance, which he expressed in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So it's, it's so easy, for instance, to turn this glorious doctrine of, the, of Jesus Christ into uh, what Garland calls a soapbox from which to spout one's own pet themes and vices. And so you'll hear someone from California or Houston say, I don't use the word sin when I preach. Amazing when Jesus himself says, I've come only to save sinners. And so, in the light of a statement like that where it's understood, unless you understand that you're a sinner and what that means, you'll have no appreciation for who I am and what I've accomplished. You will ultimately have no freedom in your life and you won't know what forgiveness is and the glory of that forgiveness uh, that comes to you and the cost of that forgiveness that God has paid through Jesus Christ. And yet we say it's negative. That is ultimately preaching ourselves and not Jesus Christ as Lord, for instance. Or to preach on just virtue. Charles Hodge, way back in the 19th century, says, to make the end of preaching virtue or just that we're going to render men honest or sober or kind or faithful. In other words, that we preach so that people will just get better. We'll curtail wickedness just by our preaching to say, and on a vacation, not this past week, but some, uh, I think it was last year actually, we attended a church and heard a sermon about Gideon. And we heard what Gideon did and how good he was and how we should be good like Gideon. We never heard about Jesus Christ in any connection. The name of Jesus was not mentioned in that service at all until we had the Lord's Supper, which was not taught much. There's nothing hardly said about Jesus even then. But there was a prime example of what Hodge is talking about. The gospel is not just telling people this is the right thing to do and that's the wrong thing to do. Paul says here, it is preaching Christ as Lord. That's what the gospel is. That's the centerpiece of everything. There's not going to be a new change in anybody's heart apart from Jesus Christ. And Hodge says it's like trying to get fruit and you don't even have a tree to start with. And so it is, we, we, we submit to what Paul, what the, what the uh, apostles set forth as the gospel. Earlier in the uh, first uh, book of Corinthians, first letter, Paul says, I knew nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. So when we talk about the gospel... We're really talking about the full, complete message of Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of the glory of God. The great action of God in Jesus Christ and what He is accomplishing and and is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Cranfield, who's written a a tremendous commentary years ago on Romans, he wrote this in, in the 60s, okay? There was an article he wrote on ministers in view of 2 Corinthians 4. Ministers in view of 2 Corinthians 4. And he says, the temptation to build up your relations, to build a following rather than build up a congregation. 
thought that was interesting. Build a following instead of a congregation. Or to exploit the gospel's drama, pathos, solemnity, and majesty for, like to use all those things about the gospel in the end to display one's own powers, one's ability, one's eloquence, one's humor, one's learning, one's gifts of popular exposition. I know how I've struggled with the whole idea of humor. You know, having, I was in, uh, I finished in music, but I took a lot of uh, theater and thought at one point that I was going to go into theater. And so uh, I've almost run from humor, you know, just to think, I, I can't be funny. I can't associate the gospel with humor, but I know it's useful to draw people out and that it keeps people interested, you know, and I can tell how sleepy people get from my every once in a while uh, with my preaching um, and the like. And yet, here's the temptation, of course, to, you know, riddle you with thing after thing after thing that makes you laugh and to have people come up afterwards and say, gosh, I really liked that. And I'll, I would realize they liked it because I was funny. They really liked it because I was funny. They liked it because of the stories. They liked it because of this. They didn't really like it because of Jesus Christ. What a temptation that is. What a temptation to be popular, to build a church that's not really building a church, but just more and more people because... Now, I do not believe that every church that's growing is because people have sacrificed the truth. No, not at all. And I'm so thankful that for the rich ministries that are huge ministries as well, and the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. It's simply that's an aspect of this thing that Paul is setting forth here, that we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, exalting Him in every way. And that can be done lacing a sermon with humor as well, of course, used in the right way, and stories used in the right way. It's simply that temptation. He goes on, and this is interesting way back in the 60s because you think 45 years, look at all that we've seen. You know, look at all we've seen on TV and everything since the 60s. He says, how often is that which is hailed as a successful ministry little more than success in winning a personal following? And he says the temptation to preach ourselves is fed by congregations who are prone to be entertained and to enjoy a minister's self-exhibition and prone to indulge in a personality cult. And the Corinthians were like that, because they were like, oh, I like Paul. No, Peter, Apollos, man, he's the dude. You know, they're all about the leaders, and each one gravitating toward a certain certain one. Um, Ministerial heroes, you see. Um, And apparently even they were caught up because they were each saying, my gift is better. No, I've got a better gift. It was a problem there in Corinth with this kind of thing. And so this undercut all of that. It put, turned everything upside down to say, we proclaim, we are servants because Christ was a servant to us. He exhibited himself as the ultimate servant dying for us. We must follow in his footsteps as his ministers to be servants. Christ is Lord. That is what we proclaim. And interesting that he can say in one place, we proclaim Christ and Him, cruci- as him, and him crucified, and in another place to say, we preach Christ as Lord. Those are not two different messages. They're one message. The Lord of glory 
who gave himself to die and was raised from the dead and exalted in heaven. The Lord of glory with supreme dignity and majesty and strength laying down his life to save us from our sins. It took God to save us from our sins. So those aren't two different things. It's the Lord of glory, the Lord himself, who alone could be crucified for us, who alone could redeem us. And of course, at this point... We have to ask ourselves, does that excite me anymore? Does Jesus Christ thrill me? Isn't that hard? Isn't it amazing how easy it is to be hardened emotionally against the very thing that we say we believe? And we have to say, you know, emotionally, I'm probably just shrugging my my shoulders. Emotionally, if it meant applause, you know, sometimes I always hated this when I was in a group and diff, different names were being called out, you know, and some names, oh, all 500 people were clapping. So my name and Darwin Jordan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> better not to have the one hand, you know, <laughs> just, let's just keep it silent because that's so pathetic. Somebody in the back said, poor kid, let's at least give him one hand, you know. Who's Darwin Jordan? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you. There we go. <laughs> There's always one in the crowd, right? But I, I, I think how often if God was to hear the applause from my heart and my life, it'd just basically be hearing that, you know. And so let's, let's come before him and confess this and say, Oh, Lord. Bind me up. Enrich my life. Reveal your glory to me, Lord. Make me, if not an apostle, which none of us are, if not a minister, but you are a citizen of the kingdom, you are the light of the world, Jesus says, to all of you. And let us then, with uh, this uh, this kind of confidence, this kind of integrity, this... this kind of allegiance to Christ, uh, be a light to this world. Well, just briefly at least, uh, it's not only the heart of the one who's proclaiming the word, but it's the heart of the one who hears the gospel. And what a contrast. Blindness on the one hand. The unbelieving, they're being blinded by the God of this world. And not just a a lack of blindness or sight, but the way it describes it, the God who said, let there be light, has shown powerfully, sovereignly, gloriously. And, And in this context, it's the glorious new covenant light of the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you're looking into two different kinds of hearts, which causes any of us, it should cause any of us to ask, Am I the one basically blinded against the glory of Jesus Christ? Because I know all of us fall into a a hardness. All of us struggle with that or we'd be perfect, always having a hot, glorious desire for Jesus, you know, a, a wonderful desire for Him. So we all struggle with that. But for some of you, you may have to say, I've never known anything like that. I've never really thought of Christ as glorious or, or, or thought of seeing the glory and beauty and love of God in Christ. 
to recognize that, to recognize what he's done on the cross as being an act of the God who made the world and, it, and, and the Holy Spirit taking it and it meaning something to me. This is, it's put in such a magnificent way, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And I know it would be easy for us to say, well, gosh, maybe half of us say, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian then, if that's what happens. We can't say it's at what level that this glory falls in your heart, but we're simply saying that a light shines to us from the gospel that in some way takes hold of our lives so that in some way we so see the beauty and glory of God in Christ that we want to give ourselves up to Him and trust Him with our lives. That's the basic stance of our life. We trust Him and we want to know Him. We want to grow in our knowledge of Him and become more and more like Him and and know more and more of this glory. You know how Jesus put it, talking about the kingdom is like a treasure in a field, and a guy finds this treasure, and he goes and sells all he has. And I love that phrase, as you've heard me say before, for joy over that treasure, he sells everything that he has. You see, he knew the value of that treasure. There was, glory had broken in upon him, in a sense, to see a rich treasure. He was so happy, everything he had up to that point, it didn't matter anymore. He wanted to sell it all. I've got to have this field because I've got this treasure there. You know what it'd be like for you, a certain section of land, and somehow by some miracle nobody knows that there's an unending source of oil on it. It's that kind of idea that he's talking about there. And so is Christ, has Christ become a treasure to us? He uses an amazing term to talk about Satan here. He talks about, you see that people might be offering criticism to Paul and say, hey, Paul, you say you preach the gospel. You say you preach such a wonderful thing. So many people refuse it. Must not be a good gospel. That's, that's the feel here. And he's saying, look, if our gospel is veiled, it's not because the gospel has anything lacking. It's not because the gospel isn't glorious and shining out the, the greatness of God. It's because of people's hearts. It's because they're blind to that beauty. It's like the sun is rising and it's a blind person. And you say, you wouldn't believe how beautiful the sun is and the red that's hitting the underside of the clouds. It just takes our breath away and just doesn't see it. Paul says, that's the problem. Unbelieving don't see the gospel. And what's so frightening? What's so frightening about your refusal of Christ or your lackadaisical attitude toward Christ and the things of God, it's very personal. There there are spiritual forces involved always when the gospel goes forth. There are spiritual forces that would blind you. And it's interesting when it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened in the Old Testament, 18 times it talks about it. Nine times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Nine times it says, God hardened his heart. You think, what does that mean? I don't know. No, everybody's puzzled, including me. It means that as you refuse him, you are giving yourself over to Satan. It means that there is this 
you're actively involved in your unbelief and your refusal. It is a personal thing because you're giving yourself over to the one that's called the God of this world or who Jesus called the ruler of this world. John said in John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. Now, by world, he means the whole complex of people that are against God. They're not just on their own. If, if you rebel against God, there's one who's rebelled ahead of you. There's one whose footsteps you're following. There's one whose who's life course you're honoring. You're giving him worship. You're giving him praise. I praise you in your rebellion against God. And here I am right after you. I praise you in your refusal of the will of God. And your refusal to trust him. I, I, I come out that way too. There's no way for it not to be personal. That is personally involved with the evil forces or personally giving yourself up to God. Human beings can't act in isolation. We just don't. They're malevolent forces. And we know how horrible it can be. We talk about people acting inhumanely. Like they act, we think... You're, you're not even acting like a human being. And it's like a malevolent force, the spirit has so taken hold of a person or a society that unimaginable atrocities occur. It's that evil force that would blind you to the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ called him a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so you need to ask yourself, in what way am I blind to the glory of Christ? What am I giving myself to that's more important than Christ? Is it something as mundane as sports? Like the thing that you think, if this one thing was taken away from me this week, I don't know how I'd get through the week. ESPN, you know. Is it reading novels? Think, gosh, don't take my novels away from me. What about the Bible? Well, I don't read it that much, you know. But don't take my novels away from me. Don't take my TV from me. Don't take... What is it? I mean, it could be things that mundane or things... But these are em, they're emblems of a trust that you have in those things. You see, a trust, more importantly a lack of trust, a thinking that I can't... It's not that TV in itself or novels in itself, I think all of these things are gifts of God, okay? They can be used for good. But when they are the dominant thing in your life, when they take over your life, when you really don't have any regard for the glory of Christ and He is not precious, He is not a treasure to you, but you can name your treasures, that's the problem. You can name your treasures, and Jesus isn't one of them. You can name the things that stir your heart and get you excited, but Jesus isn't one of them. That's the problem. And in, you and I have got to see at that point, I'm involved in blindness. I, I'm involved with the God of this world who would blind me to the glory of Jesus because it doesn't mean anything to me like all these other things mean to me. And I don't seek these things as a part of my seeking God, you see. They're not a part of my worship of God, the part of the way I please Him and rejoice in Him 
and seek him and fellowship with him in these things. It's more that I push God aside. I don't even think about him and I'm immersed. It's like I don't even know God in those things. And Philip Hughes says this. It's, to me, it was such a, a touching thing, a, a horrible thing in a way. This blindness is attended by the inability to perceive and rejoice in the surpassing splendor of the gospel. An inability to perceive and rejoice in the surpassing splendor of the gospel, and that means perdition. If we have an inability to rejoice in the splendor and beauty of Christ, it means perdition, it means judgment. We've chosen something else. But isn't it comforting to know that God, no matter what your condition, no matter how dark, no matter how hardened, no matter how dead you feel to these things, to, to read this passage and say, wait a minute, God sovereignly, with no help from anybody or anything, made the world and he said, let there be light. And there was nobody there to help him do it. He just did it and he chose to do it. And it's that kind of sovereign action that he takes place in individual lives when he shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts. Won't you then pray? Won't you then pray and say, Oh Lord, He wants to reveal Himself infinitely more than you could ever want to have Him reveal Himself. You you pray to Him and say, Oh Lord, reveal you. He's like interrupting you and say, Hey, I'm there. Okay? I'm there. I know what you have need of before you ask and I want to give it way more than you want to have it. There should be nobody here. I'm serious. Nobody here that doesn't cry out and say, Oh Lord, don't leave me in the wake. Don't leave me in the clutches of one who would blind me and ruin me when I think in my pride that I'm on my own refusing Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. The glory of of Jesus Christ that shines out, the glory of God, the beauty of God that's revealed to us in this gospel. And thank you that we are part of this amazing procession. And by your grace, we can be alongside of Paul, those who are broken and humble, those who are trusting in your love and rejoicing in your love, rejoicing in your glory and wanting to explore it more and more talking it up with one another, encouraging one another with your glory and promise and, Lord, growing as that changes our character and actually changes the kind of husbands and wives and parents we are, changes the kind of neighbors we are. Even in this context, as he says, that we're being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Oh, Lord, save anyone here, anyone here, that at present is a part of those who are perishing in their unbelief, blinded by this terrible enemy who with such cruelty would want to cut them off from tasting of God Himself, the very one who made us. Oh Lord, remove that. Save them. May they cry out to you and trust you in Jesus' name. Pleasing scene is clouded or with pain.
you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away